Chapter Thirteen of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation by Jeremy Bentham. Chapter Thirteen. Cases Unmeet for Punishment. Section 1. General View of Cases Unmeet for Punishment. 1. The general object which all laws have, or ought to have, in common, is to augment the total happiness of the community, and therefore, in the first place, to exclude, as far as may be, everything that tends to subtract from that happiness. In other words, to exclude mischief. 2. But all punishment is mischief. All punishment in itself is evil. Upon the principle of utility, if it ought at all to be admitted, it ought only to be admitted in as far as it promises to exclude some greater evil. Begin footnote. What follows, relative to the subject of punishment, ought regularly to be preceded by a distinct chapter on the ends of punishment. But having little to say on that particular branch of the subject, which has not been said before, it seems better, in a work which will at any rate be but too voluminous, to admit this title, reserve it for another, hereafter to be published, entitled The Theory of Punishment. Begin sub-footnote. This is the work which, from the author's papers, has since been published by Mr. Dumont in French, in company with the theory of reward, and added to it, for the purpose of mutual illustration. It is in contemplation to publish them both in English, from the author's manuscripts, with the benefit of any amendments that have been made by Mr. Dumont. Note to edition of 1823. End of sub-footnote. To the same work I must refer the analysis of the several possible modes of punishment, a particular and minute examination of the nature of each, and of its advantages and disadvantages, the various other disquantations, which did not seem absolutely necessary to be inserted here. A very few words, however, concerning the ends of punishment, can scarcely be dispensed with. The immediate principal end of punishment is to control action. This action is either that of the offender or of others that of the offender it controls by its influence either on his will in which case it is said to operate in the way of reformation or on his physical power in which case it is said to operate by disablement that of others it can influence otherwise than by its influence over their wills in which case it is said to operate in the way of example a kind of collateral end which it has a natural tendency to answer, is that of affording a pleasure or satisfaction to the party injured, where there is one, and, in general, to parties whose ill-will, whether on a self-regarding account, or on the account of sympathy or antipathy, has been excited by the offence. This purpose, as far as it can be answered gratis, is a beneficial one, but no punishment ought to be allotted merely to this purpose because, 
setting aside its effects in the way of control, no such pleasure is ever produced by punishment as can be equivalent to the pain. The punishment, however, which is allotted to the other purpose, ought, as far as it can be done without expense, to be accommodated to this satisfaction thus administered to a party injured, in the shape of a dissocial pleasure, may be styled a vindictive satisfaction, or compensation, as a compensation administered in the shape of self-regarding profit, or stock of pleasure, may be styled a lucrative one. Example is the most important end of all. In proportion as the number of the persons under temptation to be offended is to one. End footnote. 3. It is plain, therefore, that in the following cases punishment ought not to be inflicted. 1. Where it is groundless, where there is no mischief for it to prevent, the act not being mischievous upon the whole. 2. Where it is ineffectuous, where it cannot act so as to prevent the mischief. 3. Where it is unprofitable or too expensive, where the mischief it would produce would be greater than that what it prevented. 4. Where it is needless, where the mischief may be prevented, or cease of itself, without it, that is, at a cheaper rate. Section 2. Causes in which punishment is groundless. These are 4. 1. Where there has never been any mischief, where no mischief has been produced to anybody by the act in question. Of this number are those in which the act was such as might, on some occasions, be mischievous or disagreeable, but the person whose interest it concerns gave his consent to the performance of it. This consent, provided it be free and fairly obtained, is the best proof that can be produced that, to the person who gives it, no mischief, at least no immediate mischief, upon the whole, is done. For no man can be so good a judge as the man himself. What it is gives him pleasure or displeasure. 5. 2. Where the mischief was outweighed, although a mischief was produced by the act, yet the same act was necessary to the production of a benefit which was of greater value than the mischief. This may be the case with anything that is done in the way of precaution against instant calumnity as also with anything that is done in the exercise of the several sorts of powers necessary to be established in every community, to wit, domestic, judicial, military, and supreme. 6. 3. Where there is a certainty of an adequate compensation, and that in all cases where the offense can be committed. This supposes two things. 1 that the offence is such as admits of an adequate compensation, two, that such a compensation is sure to be forthcoming. Of these suppositions, the latter will be found to be a merely ideal one, a supposition that cannot, in the universality here given to it, be verified by fact. It cannot, therefore, in practice, be numbered amongst the grounds of absolute impunity. It may, however, be admitted as a ground for an abatement of that punishment which other considerations, standing by themselves, would seem to dictate. Begin footnote. This, for example, seems to have been one ground, at least, of the favor shown by perhaps all systems of laws to which offenders as stand upon a footing of responsibility. 
shown not directly indeed to the persons themselves but to such offences as none but responsible persons are likely to have the opportunity of engaging in in particular this seems to be the reason why embezzlement in certain cases has not commonly been punished upon the footing of theft nor mercantile frauds upon that of common sharping End footnote. section three causes in which punishment must be ineffectuous these are seven one where the penal provision is not established until after the act is done such are the cases one of an ex post facto law where the legislator himself appoints not a punishment till after the act is done two of a sentence beyond the law where the judge on his own authority appoints a punishment which the legislator had not appointed eight two where the penal provision though established is not conveyed to the notice of the person on whom it seems intended that it should operate such is the case where the law has omitted to employ any of the expedients which are necessary to make sure that every person whatsoever who is within the reach of the law be appraised of all the cases whatsoever in which being in the station of life he is in he can be subjected to the penalties of the law nine three where the penal provision though it were conveyed to a man's notice could produce no effect on him with respect to the preventing him from engaging in any act of the sort in question such is the case one in extreme infancy where a man has not yet attained that state or disposition of mind in which the prospect of evils so distant as those which are held forth by law has the effect of influencing his conduct two in insanity where the person if he has attained to that disposition has since been deprived of it through the influence of some permanent though unseen cause three intoxication where he has been deprived of it by the transient influence of a visible cause such as the use of wine or opium or other drugs that act in this manner on the nervous system which condition is indeed neither more nor less than a temporary insanity produced by an assignable cause begin footnote notwithstanding what is here said the cases of infancy and intoxication as we shall see hereafter cannot be looked upon in practice as affording sufficient grounds for absolute impunity but this exception in point of practice is no objection to the propriety of the rule in point of theory the ground of the exception is neither more nor less than the difficulty there is of asserting the matter of fact viz whether at the requisite point of time the party was actually in the state in question that is whether a given case comes really under the rule suppose the matter of fact capable of being perfectly ascertained without danger or mistake the impropriety of punishment would be as indubitable in those cases as in any other the reason that it is commonly assigned for the establishing an exception from punishment in favour of infants insane persons and persons under intoxication is either false in fact or confusedly expressed the phrase is that the will of these persons concurs not with the act that they have no vicious will or that they have not the free use of their will but suppose all this to be true what is it 
to the purpose. Nothing, except in as far as it implies the reason given in the text. End footnote. 10. 4. Where the penal provision, although being conveyed to the party's notice, it might very well prevent his engaging in acts of the sort in question, provided he knew that it related to those acts, could not have this effect with regard to the individual act he is about to engage in, to wit, because he knows not that it is of the number of those to which the penal provision relates. This may happen, one, in the case of unintentionality, where he intends not to engage, and thereby knows not that he is about to engage in the act in which eventually he is about to engage. 2. In the case of unconsciousness, where, although he may know that he is about to engage in the act itself, yet, from not knowing all the material circumstances attending it, he knows not of the tendency it has to produce that mischief, in contemplation of which it has been made penal in most instances. 3. In the case of misupposal, where, although he may know of the tendency the act has to produce that degree of mischief, he supposes it, though mistakenly, to be attended with some circumstance, or set of circumstances, which, if it had been attended with, it would either not have been productive of that mischief, or have been productive of such a greater degree of good, as has determined the legislator, in such cases, not to make it penal. 11. 5 where, though the penal clause might exercise a full and prevailing influence, where it is to act alone, yet by the predominant influence of some opposite cause upon the will, it must necessarily be ineffectual, because the evil which he sets himself about to undergo, in the case of his not engaging in the act, is so great that the evil denounced by the penal clause, in case of his engaging in it, cannot appear greater. This may happen, one, in the case of physical danger, where the evil is such as appears likely to be brought about by the unassisted powers of nature, two, in the case of a threatened mischief, where it is such as appears likely to be brought about through the intentional and conscious agency of man. Begin footnote. The influences of the moral and religious sanctions, or, in other words, of the motives of love of reputation, and religion are other causes, the force of which may, upon particular occasions, come to be greater than that of any punishment which the legislature is able, or at least which we will think proper, to apply. These, therefore, it will be proper for him to have his eye upon. But the force of these influences is variable and different in different times and places. The force of the foregoing influences is constant and the same at all times and everywhere. These, therefore, it can never be proper to look upon as safe grounds for establishing absolute impunity, owing, as in the above-mentioned cases of infancy and intoxication, to the impracticality of asserting the matter of fact. End footnote. 12. 6. Where, though the penal clause may exert a full and prevailing influence over the will of the party, yet his physical facilities, owing to the predominant influence of some physical cause, are not in a condition to follow the determination of the will, insomuch that the act is absolutely involuntary. Such is the case of physical compulsion or restraint, 
by whatever means brought about, where the man's hand, for instance, is pushed against some object which his will disposes him not to touch, or tied down from touching some object which his will disposes him to touch. Section 4. Cases where punishment is unprofitable. These are 13. 1. Where on the one hand the nature of the offence, on the other hand that of the punishment, are, in the ordinary state of things, such that when compared together the evil of the latter will turn out to be greater than that of the former. 14. Now evil of the punishment divides itself into four branches, by which so many different sets of persons are affected. 1. The evil of coercion or restraint, or the pain which it gives a man not to be able to do the act, whatever it be, which by the apprehension of the punishment he is deterred from doing, this is felt by those by whom the law is observed. 2. The evil of apprehension, or the pain which a man who has exposed himself to punishment feels at the thoughts of undergoing it. This is felt by those by whom the law has been broken, and who feel themselves in danger of its being executed upon them. 3. The evil of sufferance, or the pain which a man feels, in virtue of the punishment itself, from the time when he begins to undergo it. This is felt by those by whom the law is broken, and upon whom it comes actually to be executed. 4. The pain of sympathy, and the other derivative evils resulting to the persons who are in connection with the several classes of original sufferers just mentioned. Now of these four lots of evil, the first will be greater or less according to the nature of the act from which the party is restrained, the second and third according to the nature of the punishment which stands annexed to the offence. 15. On the other hand, as to the evil of the offence, this will also, of course, be greater or less according to the nature of each offence. The proposition between the one evil and the other will therefore be different in the case of each particular offence. These cases, therefore, where punishment is unprofitable on this ground, can by no other means be discovered than by an examination of each particular offence, which is what will be the business of the body of the work. 16.2. Where, although in the ordinary state of things, the evil resulting from the punishment is not greater than the benefit which is likely to result from the force with which it operates, during the same space of time, towards the excluding the evil of the offences, yet it may have been rendered so by the influence of some occasional circumstances. In the number of these circumstances may be, one, the multitude of delinquents at a particular juncture, being such as would increase beyond the ordinary measure the quantum of the second and third lots, and thereby also of a part of the fourth lot, in the evil of the punishment. 2. The extraordinary value of the services of someone delinquent in the case where the effect of the punishment would be to deprive the community of the benefit of those services. 3. The displeasure of the people, that is, of an indefinite number of the members of the same community, in cases where, owing to of the influence of some occasional incident, they happen to conceive that the offence or the offender ought not to be punished at all, or at least ought not to be punished in the way in question. 4. The displeasure of foreign powers, that is, of the governing body, or a considerable number of the members of some foreign community, or communities, 
with which the community in question is connected. Section 5. Cases where punishment is needless. These are 17. 1. Where the purpose of putting an end to the practice may be attained as effectually at a cheaper rate by instruction, is for instance as well as by terror, by informing the understanding, as well as by exercising an immediate influence on the will. This seems to be the case with respect to all those offences which consist in the disseminating pernicious principle in matters of duty, of whatever kind the duty may be, whether political or moral or religious, and this, whether such principles be disseminated under, or even without, a sincere persuasion of their being beneficial, I say even without, for though in such a case it is not instruction that can prevent the writer from endeavouring to inculcate his principles, yet it may the readers from adopting them without which his endeavouring to inculcate them will do no harm. In such a case, the sovereign will commonly have little need to take an active part, if it be the interest of one individual to inculcate principles that are pernicious, it will as surely be the interest of other individuals to expose them. But if the sovereign must needs take a part in the controversy, the pen is the proper weapon to combat error with, not the sword. End of chapter 13 Recording by Gary Gilbert